that all those players are still here, Brody. What what message does that send to the players? What message does that send to the fan base? Well, I hope I hope to the players it's a belief in, in who they are and, and it's a belief in what we're trying to accomplish, not only in 19, because we're going to keep fighting in 19, but also what we want to be going forward. And I think the same message is true for the fans, is that this organization doesn't concede anything and this organization is not going to make moves that uh, that – that sacrifice the opportunity to show up every night with the belief we can win. And uh, the moves that we'll continue to make are, are focused on, on giving the fans a product they can, they can have some faith and confidence in, but also a product that they can, they can look forward to, to the season to come of, uh, of a championship-caliber club, and we'll keep, keep trying to do that. Tell me now, uh, it was 10-5, and five, what are you now? 11-5, and 11-6 since the All-Star break, whatever it is. So it's, yeah. still, it's still good baseball, and you lost three games in extra innings to the Giants during that time. So you've been in almost every ball game in the last couple of weeks. Well, and, and we still have a road, road to travel. But I think that the way we've played, and, and now every day we wake up and we've got a guy that we feel like can, can give us a chance to win. And Jake gets to go tonight. we got another, another game here in, in a couple hours, and, and tomorrow we roll out, uh, roll out another one, and, and it keeps, keeps on rolling. So every five days we feel like we're going to have a chance with this, with this group. And, and uh, the core of the team, I think, is intact, and they're going to feel – Hopefully they're going to feel re-energized that uh, that you know we're, nobody's quitting here. So we has Strowman? They made it seem like Strowman uh, had his heart set on getting in a pennant race and being in, in, with the Yankees, and then he. But he's a local kid, so uh, as it's worn off, I'm sure he's got to be excited now. At least being in New York, if he wasn't with the Yankees, and he might wind up in a pennant race anyway if he gets lucky. So who knows what's going to happen, right? Has he has he kind of gotten his equilibrium now after a couple of days of this? Well, hopefully he finds himself in a pennant race this year. But when I talked to him after the trade, I, I wanted him to understand the culture we were trying to create here and that we want to create a winning mindset. We, we have ambition. Uh, we know he has ambition. And, uh, you know, hopefully those, those two shared interests will, will manifest themselves into, into great success for, for everybody. But I think the, the fans are going to enjoy him. Our teammates, I'm, I'm confident, will – We'll feed off his energy, and hopefully we can go beat, uh, go beat some teams as we're trying to, trying to fight back in this thing. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champion. Here's the one-two pitch. Strike him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field. Floyd. And after running rough shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three call. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in the box. 
It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Friday, August the 2nd, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the Talking Mets podcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Welcome back to the program, and as promised, after the trade deadline, we would reconvene a little earlier than the normal Sunday, and I have to tell you, what a wild few days, starting at about, what did the game end on Sunday, about 6 o'clock, and then uh, we were together for the podcast that had our friend Rich Mancuso break down the Marcus Stroman trade, which happened around 6 p.m., and then there was the three-day waiting game as you got to the deadline, and then the couple of hours before the deadline, and a lot in between, and a lot to unpack and unwind, and I, I'm going to go a little bit different here. Uh, an old friend of the show will be joining me in just a little bit, Paul Lebowitz. Uh, Paul uh, wrote for the now-defunct FanRag Sports, uh, which also John Heyman and some other big names were at at that point. FanRag, I think, was before The Athletic, and, and I don't know if they really had a ton of capital like The Athletic to keep the thing going, but... They were like The Athletic before The Athletic, and, and Paul has some really great baseball analysis. You can get him on paullebowitz.com is his website. Um, so a little bit of a different voice joining us in just a little bit to break down the deadline, the Mets moves, and uh, whether or not this was the right thing. But I want to start with the overall theme of the mindset in the game because it ties into the Mets, it ties into what Brody's doing, and it ties into... I think changing the mindset, and also, I think one of it's becoming one of the biggest problems with the game. When I look at reaction to the deadline, and I see GMs, forget about the fact that the quote I'm about to give you is the Toronto GM who is in a rebuilding mode, which is fine. But when I see GMs talk about 14 years of control, of you know, after this deadline, I now have 42 years of control. I'm completely understanding of the economic system that we're, that's that the game has, and I also think, and if you haven't had a chance to read it, at Deadspin, they had a, uh, because the, the Packers are a publicly traded company, uh, I, I think you should read about some of the overhead and expenses that go into play in running a professional sports team, and... It's not as much revenue, it's not as much profit, I should say. Now, forget about revenue, there's plenty of revenue, there's not as much profit as we all would think. So I just want to put that out there. What I do want to say, and Ken Rosenthal wrote about this, and he tied it into more about changing the economic model of the game, that when I see quotes from Rick Hahn of the White Sox saying that teams are being very clinical about their chances to win, and Ken Rosenthal saying how concerned teams are about being ranked number 30 by Baseball America and prospect lists, I have to tell you, we are we are doing this all wrong. We're allowing analytics departments, uh, prospect writers who, all due respect, have just about as much opinion that count as you and I. I mean, if I had, if I wanted to sit around and talk to a bunch of scouts and research prospects and put a, a list together based on my own biases and, and opinions. And, and, and we're going to all live by that, then, then, then it could be, could be completely different. Uh, nobody has the answer. And what's interesting is that Adam Guttridge, who runs the Mets analytical department, and I tweeted this out, 
and you could Google Adam Gutridge, the prospect model, talks a lot about this. This is an old article from about six years ago that talks about the, fal- the, the fallacies with prospect lists and having too many opinions versus what I think the Mets are doing internally, which is looking at their prospects. And because Brody Van Wagenen and because these guys are not even here a year and because the guys they've been trading were not drafted by them, which is, is an advantage. Uh, I think they're being very objective with what they have and also not getting caught up in some of the hype or and certainly not getting caught up in the fear that they're going to be, be mocked. But Houston here, who has as much uh, cachet with the analytics community as anybody, you know, they're not hugging prospects. They, go, they went out and, and, and they went for it, bringing in Greinke. And Greinke may be overkill in that rotation, but you can never have enough starting pitching. They're not worried about five years from now, four years from now. Uh, the Braves went out and got some relievers. But when you have teams like the Yankees sitting around stressing about D.V. Cruz, who who who, who knows? Let's see, D.V. Cruz. D.V. Garcia. D.V. Cruz. That was a shortstop, I think, for the Tigers back in the day. Uh, you have the Yankees sitting around worried about a guy that may never, ever pitch an inning for the Yankees. And again, I understand the Yankees look at their roster and they know the money that a judge and a Gleyber Torres and if Andujar ever becomes something, he'll have to get paid and Severino. And, and, and yeah, they're going to have some, and they've lived it with A-Rod and Jeter and Posada and, and Rivera where all of a sudden you have about seven or eight guys that are just making up so much of your payroll and it becomes very hard to improve the team. But if you believe in those guys... This is not like when the Mets and Sandy took over and you had guys like Luis Castillo and Ali Perez and uh, all this this money that was dead that was crippling them. This is not the case here. You know, Jason Bay, this is not the case. Uh, these are uh, uh, these are stars. And, and I think we've gotten away from making winning the priority. I look at the standings. And forget about the Mets and the run they're on, and, and who knows what's going to happen. We'll get to that. But I see Milwaukee, San Francisco, Arizona, who's not even really uh, actively believing they're going to be a, a playoff team. But they're in it at three and a half games out. The Mets, I mean, the the Reds and the, the, the Padres are on the peripheral. It's getting a little late to be six and a half, seven games out. Um, but you could even put, maybe put the Reds in there a little bit. I mean, that's a wild race. So forget, even if you cut it off at the Mets... You've got three teams right now in the wild card because you have the tie with Philly and Washington and Chicago. A three-way tie. That's amazing. you got Milwaukee. you got San Francisco. you got Arizona and the Mets. I mean, if this continues and these guys continue to be bunched up, you might have a really wild September. And that was why the wild card was created. That's why this was all done in 1994. If you were going to have GMs behave like they're behaving right now, which is... Zero-sum thinking. And I heard this on MLB Network Radio where I can't remember who the analyst was, but but they were saying about the Diamondbacks, well, they're good, but why would you sacrifice the possibility of greatness if, you know, you're, you, just to be good, just to be in the, in the race? And I'm saying to myself, you may never be great. You know, the Reds traded a prospect that studs are calling a scout. He's batting 230 in double-A. This I mean, you should have just kept the 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 league the way it was with the for the four divisions because you have four playoff teams and that's it because if you're in the in the division with the Dodgers you're done you could have started rebuilding in May you could have absolutely started rebuilding in May and um and away you go 
That's what the, the, the league is about now. So it's so zero-sum that you might as well get rid of the wild card. Really? Why have this race? Why have all this if, if none of these teams, uh, either the GMs are, and the owners are going to be like, oh, we're in the race. How are we going to explain this to our fans? Get rid of it. Because you're not playing to win. The fans aren't stupid. They know that. It's not going to help you with attendance. So the whole fact of the wild card is a farce. Now, I'm being facetious, but really, I got to tell you, it, it, it's not. And then you go to the Mets, who are, are behaving exactly as you should behave in this modern era. And they're being scorned for it. And, and before I get to the coverage of the Mets, there was nothing that Brody Van Wagenen has done over the last three or four days that was irresponsible. The things that people are criticizing him for, not going out and getting another bench piece, not get going out and getting a reliever, which it looks like he was trying to really get relievers. That's what would have been irresponsible. I keep hearing that you don't understand what the plan is. I'm confused. Then, guys, you're not paying attention. Brody looks at his system. He looks at what he's trying to do going forward. He has his own beliefs on analytics, his own beliefs on drafting and scouting, and he feels like he has the ability to be creative. He keeps talking about how he demands creativity of his staff. Think out of the box. They did that during the draft. They're fully capable over the next two to three years of building their own farm system with without any of the Olderson prospects, which right now he's benefiting from the Olderson prospects because they're on the major league roster. Conforto and McNeil and Alonzo and Rosario, Seth Lugo, Robert Gazelman. I mean, there's still Manaya guys on the roster and, and, and DeGrom and Mats. Everybody benefits from a prior regime, but that doesn't mean you have to sit around and sit on them. There should be no confusion. And every deal he's made, significant deal, where he's given up significant capital, like a Jared Kelnick or a Justin Dunn or a Simeon Woods Richardson or an Anthony Kay, he's gotten back players that are not just rentals, that are not long in the tooth. Because Cano, I don't, Cano it was a deal they could have made without any of this stuff, so I'm not going to get into that again. Got back Edward Diaz. He got back Marcus Stroman. These are guys that are controllable beyond this year. And if you want to sell them, you can get back some a decent return. Now, maybe they didn't have that happen this year because they were asking for quite a bit, rightfully so. But that doesn't mean next year that they're going to be in the same position. They may be in a position where they're going to be a contender. And then there's the word, oh, how, what are they going to sell at that point if they uh, uh, trade all their prospects now? They'll be prospects. They'll be prospects. There are guys right now that we're not talking about that all of a sudden will be developed and, and much more desirable next year. They will. And based on where the game is going, really, where the game is going, nobody gives up top prospects anyway. So if the Mets put a halfway decent package with their B prospects, that might be better than what anybody's giving because I don't even think they want to give B prospects. The Yankees don't want to give anything. Anything. I mean, when you see some of the names that get bandied about, it's all about guys with tools and potential. Are we building teams or are we building stock portfolios? Because if the GMs are sitting around, and I know we have the Wall Street factor where all this private equity money now owns teams and they're bringing in guys that they knew from their Bear Stern days and all this stuff, but it, it, this is not a, a portfolio. This is a baseball team. There's life to it. There's emotion. There's a lot of things that when you take the paper and you put it outside of that, that you have to factor in. You're not going to draw this game to a new generation if the mindset is not to win when you're three games out of a wild card spot. 
or the mindset is, well, I can't beat the Dodgers. Why can't the Mets beat the Dodgers in a short series? Is it tough? Yeah. Uh, would I put the odds in their favor? Sure. Not No, that, that's a good team. But every night, there's going to be a pitcher that could shut somebody down. I mean, Stroman's one of the best pitchers pitching in the American League East, where you have the Yankees and the Red Sox, and over the years, you've had a good Tampa team. Even Baltimore, when they've been bad, they, you, you, you pitch in that ballpark. It's, it's, it's crazy. Why couldn't he pitch against the Dodgers? Or the Cubs, or the you know, the Mets can't beat the Cardinals in a short series. The Braves are a, t- a good team, but they don't have any experience. They'll be tough, but the Mets have played them tough. Mets have played everybody tough all year. Their bullpen has undermined them. Brody Van Wagenen is a market disruptor. He went in and he thought out of the box. He didn't follow the template that was out there, where you have to be either an extreme contender or you're a seller, and it annoyed everybody. And the coverage was awful. At first on Sunday, I saw, well, they gave up way too much. And I looked at him like, well, Woods Richardson could be something that bites them maybe five years down the road. He's at least five years away from being anywhere where Marcus Stroman was in 2014. And he's probably another three years after that. So you've got seven years from now, which maybe Alonzo McNeil won't even be on the team. Who the hell knows what the Mets are going to look like, what the rules are going to be like, or what the league is going to be like, and who's going to be good in seven years. You don't know. And Anthony Kay is a nice prospect, but you know we had you know we had the the audio on the show. I had my friend down in Charlotte look at him. You're not giving up Noah Syndergaard here, circa 2013, 2014. You're not giving up Jacob Degrom here. That's not what the profile's at. And if he's a solid number three, you could get that. You could get that. They've doubled down on their starting pitching. But my thing is, first it was a, a too much, and then when executives got mad because the Mets screwed up the market for them. Then it was a pittance, and then it was being framed like, well, now they screwed themselves with Wheeler. And then they get criticized because they're asking too much for Wheeler. Well, he's a free agent. Well, he, it's exactly like I told you it was going to go down. They offered Wheeler the, they're going to offer Wheeler the qualifying offer, and you know maybe they have an inkling he's not going to take it. So at this point, we're all worried, oh, my God, he's got, they got all this payroll. And that's, that's something to look at later on, how they have about $139 million already locked up for next year. Because now you're looking at, well, what's the budget going to be? But let's worry about that next year. I think Brody made these moves knowing full well what was on the books for next year. He's talked about it every single interview, winning now, winning in the future. It's not like on uh, the day after the season ends, he's going to say, well, let's see what we got on the books for next year, guys. It doesn't work like that. It, it's just absurd how it was covered. And now it's quieted down because the Mets are winning and because they legitimately are, are they're playing bad teams, teams they should beat. Uh, they're not playing historically bad on the road. I mean, they were winning, they were losing at a, a, a 75% clip at one time on the road. I mean, that's not this team. Uh, you know, this is a team that's actually been pretty good on the road over the last couple of years. Now, you know, there's games to be made up, but it's quieted down because... Everybody's accepted right now that this is the way it's going to be. They're waiting for it to fall apart, to mock it. And boy, is the media mad that the Yankees didn't get a pitcher from the Mets. I mean, you've got Larry Brooks, a hockey writer, opining about why the Mets should trade with the Yankees. And, you know, almost in a way where he's angry about it. And look at Aaron Hicks. He's there for the the, the Mets. and, And why can't they make a deal? And I'm saying to myself, even if... In a vacuum, that made sense if Aaron Hicks wasn't hurt early in the year. And he does have a reasonable contract. Why would I want to trade for a center fielder? And I have no problem with getting an Aaron Hicks. And for Noah Syndergaard for Aaron Hicks, that's the kind of major league piece I think the Mets would be intrigued by. But the guy's got a back issue. He's signed long term. Um, you know, 
it's got to be more than that. And and what makes you think the Yankees, who never want to give anything of value, would do that? I mean, this is where I go with all this. I'm just, it's amazing how angry they are because they've been pining for two years for the Yankees to pluck from this rotation. And I'm really going to be interested to see if we're sitting here in October, whether the Mets make any kind of run and play any games in October, forget that for a minute. But if we're sitting here in New York and Tanaka and Paxton, uh, maybe Severino comes back, or any of these starters gets clocked and pounded in a playoff game against Houston or Boston, maybe Minnesota. I mean, are we going to worry about Divi Garcia at that point? Uh, Clint Frazier, who has no role on this team? Estevan Florial, who probably who at this point it hasn't hit enough to show that he'll ever get out of any kind of uh, low levels of the minor leagues. I mean, is this what it's come down to? This is what we're worried about? We're worried about writers and media and prospect people, some of which are probably just out of college, what they have to say. That's what's running the game? It's absurd. It's absurd. Guys, I said this. I said this the other day. Stop worrying about payroll. Stop worrying about media trolling. Worrying about prospects in 2023. Enjoy the rest of this year and the upcoming offseason. The Mets are going to go for it. That should make you happy. This isn't a stock portfolio. This is baseball. Remember why you watch. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Paul Lebowitz, a good friend from paullebowitz.com, formerly a fan rag, will join me. Let's hear what he thinks about all this. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. There's Wheeler, second start back from the injured list. Garcia goes down swinging on the slider. And Wheeler's got a strikeout to start his day. Reed goes down swinging. And Angle is blown away on the fastball, and Wheeler's gone perfect through the first three innings. And Wheeler strikes out Garcia with the changeup. That's his fourth strikeout, 10 up and 10 down for Zach. Goins goes down swinging on the curveball, and Wheeler looking fantastic has retired 11 straight to start this game. And there's strike three called, 0 2 coming. And he struck him out with the changeup. Third time he's gotten Reed, seventh strike out of the day for Zach. Will pop up into shallow right by Anderson, and on comes Conforto to slide and make the catch. Oh, the Mets have played some defense today. Rosario in the last inning, and now Conforto with a terrific sliding catch. And that gets Wheeler through seven scoreless innings with a 4 0 lead. We're back and joining us, uh, old friend of the show, Paul Lebowitz. You guys can check out his website, paullebowitz.wordpress.com, and you can check him out on uh, Twitter at Prince underscore of underscore NY. Freelance baseball writers, uh, been doing this a while, used to do a bunch of work for FanRag. Paul, welcome to the show, and uh, here's how I'll start off. There's a lot of confusion mm-hmm. out there. There's confusion in the media, confusion amongst the fans. You hear that the Mets gave up too much. Then you hear they gave up too little. I've never seen so much confusion over one move that the Mets made at the deadline. And not only confusion, anger. So you want to break down your thoughts on this? Because I gave my opinion in the open. I'm curious, um, you know, where are you at with all the craziness that's been going on since about 6 o'clock on Sunday? Well, if they're offering Stroman for Kay and and Richardson, and it's – 
three days before the deadline and you have plenty of time to decide whether you're going to keep Stroman, whether you're going to keep Syndergaard, what you're going to do, you have to take that trade. And in the immediate aftermath, the reaction was, why are the Mets doing this? And then it turned into, that's all the Mets gave up. And it's almost they were there was a begrudge, begrudging acknowledgement that, hey, you know what, this is a pretty good deal, even if it's only for a year and a half. And even if the Mets do decide to either spin Stroman off or do trade Syndergaard and trade Diaz, and they've got themselves a young starter who is under control for next year, and it boosted their rotation significantly when you've got Marcus Stroman replacing Jason Vargas and they retain Wheeler. Absolutely. I think the the best part was that everybody was like, well, this, you can't do this. What's your plan? And, and everyone's trying to figure out what the plan is. And, and I know that Brody's a salesman and I know that agents will use agent speak and sales speak and winning now and winning in the future. That, what does that really mean? But what it does show me is the behavior with any of the deals he's made for the most part, he's gotten back controllable long-term pieces, whether it be Edwin Diaz and the Cano deal Strowman here, uh, J.D. Davis, and he didn't go out and he didn't bolster the bench or the bullpen by giving away an asset or a good player for someone who's a rental. And now they're getting criticized for that, but I think it aligns. If you really pay attention, it's a simple statement, but you can see what the guy's all about, what the guy's trying to do. He sees he has a nucleus that's pretty good. It's not a perfect team. Why sit around and wait for it to be perfect when maybe you could be good enough to make the playoffs and uh, and make some noise, especially with this rotation. It's easier for people to understand when there's a bottom line definition as to what you're doing and you're clear about it. Like you look at the Orioles, they're gutting the place. They've cleaned house. They're essentially taking an expansion team and building it from the bottom up. That's easy for people to understand. You look at the Astros, it's easy to understand what they're doing. We have these top prospects that we are not going to trade, mostly not going to trade. I'm, I'm, they had been a little bit flexible with Tucker, depending on who was coming back. But with Tucker and Whitley, they weren't going anywhere. You want to talk about anybody else, we'll talk about them, because they're trying to win the World Series. What the Mets are doing, there was almost like a, a Brody's playing poker, and He's letting you know that, yeah, I am willing to trade Diaz. I'm willing to retool for next year, but I am not going to gut the place. And if the opportunity does present itself for me to get Stroman and get better right now and then say, you know what, I have the, this is the price for Wheeler. This is the price for Syndergaard. If you pay it, you get the player. And if you don't pay it, we're going to keep them. I think that other teams thought he was bluffing them. But he might very well have been serious, and in retrospect, he was serious because he didn't trade either of them. And if you look at what went on at the deadline, yeah, you had teams like the Astros go for it, and the Braves with the, the moves they made uh, for the bullpen arms go for it. And the Mets, you know, whether you want to say that they went for it with Stroman, they, they improved the team. But a lot of teams, like the Dodgers, um, like the Yankees, didn't do anything. And then I'm listening to MLB Network Radio, and I hear you know people talk about the Diamondbacks, who are actually right there with the Mets, same kind of position ahead of the Mets, uh, you know, going into today's action. Uh, you know, and I, and I hear rhetoric like, "Well, they're good, but why pass up the chance to be great?" And I'm saying to myself, maybe that's part of the problem with this sport, which everybody talks about offense and 
the fan engagement and, and all these things that we could do to make the game better, juice ball, whatever. And I'm, and I said, no, the, the issue you have is that here you have a wild card race that could be really wild in the national league. And it's almost like the teams are holding their nose that they're still in it, except for the two or three at the top. Uh, the Mets are criticized for trying to be in it. How dare you try to be in it? You don't have a clear enough uh, pathway to win. And I'm saying this isn't the NBA. Uh, the Dodgers are not the uh, Chicago Bulls of the 90s. They could be beaten in a short series. Is it tough? Yeah. Is it likely? The odds are against you. And I see percentage of playoff odds go from 5% to 20% in four or five days. And I'm like, well, maybe we're taking a zero-sum thinking and these analytics. And I'm not anti-analytics, but maybe we've gotten to the point where we've become obsessed with uh, certain aspects of the game that became – you know, mainstream and now getting beaten to death. And it's destroying in a lot of ways, I think, the fun. I've never seen a more joyless Mets fan base. And maybe Twitter's a bad example. But I even talked to those outside of Twitter. Twitter is a horrible example. But you know what? I talked to guys outside of the general fan base who I know aren't on Twitter and probably don't even listen to these kind of shows. And, uh, you know, they're, they're talking a lot of the same rhetoric. They're not happy. You should be happy. Have some fun with this thing. Not the end of the world. Um, you have to look at the Diamondback situation a little bit differently because they had that contract of Greinke that they just wanted to get rid of at all costs because that was hamstring. And you're talking about thirty million dollars for a pitcher who was what thirty five, and that yep. for a team like the Diamondbacks with limited payroll, and now it, you know it just came out a little while ago that they're considering moving to Nevada because of their uh, ballpark situation, their circumstances are different than another team. Like the Mets are pretty well locked in with most of their contracts. I mean, you could have traded Syndergaard and looked toward next year and gotten a bunch of prospects. But apart from Cano, who they did get some salary relief from the Mariners with, in addition to getting rid of Swarzak and Bruce and Cespedes, with, where they're getting um, insurance money back, what contract is so hideous for the Mets that they just can't deal with it and that's the priority to get rid of it? There really isn't one, and you're not going to get rid of Cano anyway because nobody's taking that contract like the Mets did. So the combination of the number of teams who are kind of sort of in it but have a plan that they're going to try to retool instead of going for it, and a team like the Mets who really didn't have anything to lose – by getting Stroman and continuing to go for it. If you look at the uh, additions the teams made, what additions were the Mets going to make to that bullpen that would be better than Diaz and Familia getting themselves straightened out? I guess Green, right now, the, guys that the, that, that's, the guys that Atlanta got could have helped, but what, what were you giving up? I mean, then, then it would have been – it's almost like they're telling Brody, you were irresponsible, you gave away our prospects, which I'll get to that in a minute because – we don't know exactly what they think about those guys, even though everyone thinks that the MLB pipeline is the gospel. We don't know. You go and start trading prospects uh, of that similar ilk for middle relievers, even if they have oh, a year of control. See, that to me is more of an indictment because then it says all those guys you acquired at a deadline two years ago, you can't get one of those guys to give you quality innings. You can't take a Blackham out of the, uh, the, 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 out of Syracuse. And bring them up, villainies. I mean, you can't get any of these guys to, to develop. No, those aren't all Brody's. None of those are really Brody's problem. But, you know, that's the part where I laugh because they're advocating for him to do 
exactly what they're criticizing him on the other hand. When you're looking at prospects, and this is without getting into prospect rankings, we can talk about that later. If this is an entirely new regime. Now, what Sandy thought and Sandy's operation thought was a high-end prospect like Anthony Kay, you could have someone like Omar Minaya and Allard Baird and their analytics guys and even Phil Regan look at him and say, you know what, with this guy, I don't see anything more than a four or five starter and maybe a long reliever. He might end up being Brett Cecil where you have to stick him in the bullpen. So, and Simeon Woods Richardson was 18. You don't know what he is. You don't know what an 18-year-old Forget about what he is. Even if he's Stroman, what is he, seven years away from being Stroman, where he is now, at least, maybe more? Well, that was the point I made with uh, Kay. Now, he's already about to turn, I think it's 25. He's either going to be 24 or 25, whichever it is. He is now in Syracuse, and he's struggling. As his innings incrementally increase, when are you getting not 190, 200 innings from him? When he's 28? When is this happening? He's recovered from Tommy John surgery. He's not going to be in the big leagues and ready to contribute until next year at midseason at the earliest. So what exactly are you waiting for? Now, if they didn't make the deal for Stroman, and they still had – they let Wheeler walk, and they kept Syndergaard. What are we talking about? The fifth, sixth starter? This is what you're worrying about? Yeah, they, they are. And, and, I, I've, and I asked some questions. I, I, you know, I, I, I pulled a, you know, again, we, we're dealing Twitter a subset. But that's what you got to, to interact here with these programs and what have you. And they're like, well, you like seeing prospects. They go through the organization. Yeah, I get it. The Brooklyn to Binghamton to Syracuse. Now the Mets have all these minor league teams in the state. You can get to see them as they go up the line. You, you remember David Wright. You remember Jose Reyes. But you've got guys like that. It's not like the whole team is going to be mercenaries. You've got Alonzo. You've got McNeil. You've got Conforto. Uh, you, know, you, you, you know, maybe Nito makes it into the mix. And, and Rosario, who knows what's going to happen there. But – uh, you know, there's a point in time where, and this is the thing I was I was thinking to myself. You know, they're never going to really tell you whole, truthfully what they really think of these prospects. It's proprietary. They're not going to go and, and open up the the books for you. It's not your entitlement. So I know that they got Adam Gutridge to run their analytics department, and 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 this may mean absolutely nothing. So I go and I Google the guy, and I guess. About six or seven years ago, he has this automated prospect model that he presented at Sloan and things like that. And, and essentially, if you look at this model, it does not take into account anything that you would see from prospect lists. It basically says prospect lists – in a nutshell, to, to basically boil it down, prospect lists are, are, are nonsense. They're not, they're not what you would use if you're in, a, in, a, uh, in an organization. And my guess is they hired this guy. He came in. He took, you know, it's a combination of data, scouting, whatever they had, said, you know, these are the guys you keep. These are the guys you get rid of. And, and maybe furthermore, Brody's like, let's just use these assets we have now to build upon the team that we have. And I'll draft and build my own farm system while I'm winning now. It's, it's, it's different. You don't usually see that. But I don't think it's a crazy idea. Is it risky? Sure. I think sitting on your hands like the Yankees have is just as risky in a different way. I think Brody is scaring people. 
because they're looking at what he's doing and saying this agent, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's never been inside baseball. Well, you know what? The guy played at Stanford. He went to Stanford. And if you look at what he did in the draft, it was high risk. But at the 80th pick, they got Matthew Allen, who was a consensus top 15 pick. And then they, they worked it so they had the money to sign him, and he signed. So you're talking about three major prospects in the first 80 picks that he nailed. At, and they're saying it was at the expense of the rest of the draft. I want you to just look at the number of players who were drafted from the 10th round on who became stars. You can name them. Off the, t- off the top of your head, there are a bunch of them you can name. Piazza, James Shields. Uh, I mean, you want to throw Seth Lugo in there. He's not a star, but he was a late-round pick. So once you get into the, the 20th and the 30th round, a lot of times they're picking legacy players as a favor, or they're just picking some kid as a prospect who's got, uh, he's got a great arm. He can run fast. And maybe one of them might bust through. He'll have the... He'll have something that he'll surpass these other guys. But the odds are the main guys who are going to make it to the big leagues are the top three to four rounds, and then you can sprinkle in a few rounds after that, and the big-name international signings. Anybody else is an outlier. Absolutely, no. And, and it, it, it just drives everybody nuts. I think you're right. I think they don't, they don't, they've never seen – and, look, they don't have an affinity for the ownership. That's part of – the problem here, the, the media doesn't like the ownership, and they've brought some of that on themselves. Uh, but you know, there's also that agenda that goes into play here. Um, you know, with the deadline, Paul, do you do you like the the hard deadline? I mean, I think they should move it to the 15th of August. I've been saying that for 10 years because uh, of the fact you have two wild cards and and you really don't know who's in and who's out. You know, maybe give it two more weeks, especially with how conservative some of these teams are with their prospects. Do you think that would help? Did you like the way that things went with the, the hard deadline? Oh, I like the hard deadline. I prefer it this way. And if they really want it to be a frenzy, then just make the wild card play in a three-game series. Then you're going to have teams not knowing what to do. Because you can always make the argument saying, I'm not going to surrender anything of value to try to get into a one-game playoff when I don't know what's going to happen in that one game. But if you're the Mets and you say, you know what, I got Jacob DeGrom pitching that game. <laughs> so – I, it's worth it for me to say, hey, game one game, it's like a game seven. I'm throwing it out there. But with a three-game series, there are going to be so many teams saying, you know what, two out of three, it's worth it. It's worth a shot. And with the hard deadline, mm-hmm. you've got to decide, what are you doing here? Are you going for it or are you not going for it? And the, back I mean, a year ago or two years ago when Verlander got traded, nobody was claiming that contract. So you knew he was getting through waivers. So you had an extra month to think about what you wanted to do. Now, hey, you want this player, you got to make the offer now, and you gotta, you got to move. I like the hard deadline. That's one thing, I, that's one change I do like. Yeah. So do you believe, I don't believe in the Mets until they hit 500. I mean, I still, they got to hit 500. And it, mathematically, look, they got to go 37 and 17 to win 90 games. And I think you have to at least use that as a barometer to say, if I win 90 games, I got a pretty good chance of, playing something, even if it's a play into the play in, let's say that. That's a lot of winning. And this bullpen shaky. Uh, the defense is what it is. The offense, I think, is okay. It's, it's league average, and it has times where it, it's better than league average. And you're going to be riding these starting pitchers seven innings a night and, and hoping that you could win a lot of what you see over the last couple of days. 
Um, everyone's getting a little giddy. My my concern is the fans are going to do their up and down. You know, if they lose a game this weekend on Friday or Saturday, they're going to be back to, ah, everything's over. Um, or, you know, they feel like if they do go for this and then they win 82, 83 games, you know, oh, look, it was all for naught. I think we just sit back. We enjoy it. Um, you have some fun with this thing. And, and, and that's what this is all about. I'm not trying to be Pollyannish. I, I really believe that we're getting too caught up in the owners and payroll in 2023. I, I've never seen the fan base like this. Enjoy it. And I think they have a shot of making things interesting. I'm not saying they're going to make the playoffs. I'm not going to say they're going to go to the NLCS or the World Series. I think they can make things interesting. I think 500 is just a, a random baseline that people use. But if you look at the – just look at the standings. The Phillies are, and the Washington Nationals were supposed to be heavy buyers. The Mets are four games behind them in the, in the loss column with plenty of games against those teams. The NL Central's a mess. There's four teams who could say, you know what, we still have a shot at this. Uh, the National West, National West, I mean, the division is over. But the Giants decided – not to trade Bumgarner when he was the the big gun on the on the market and they pulled him off the market. So to say the Mets shouldn't go for it with their starting pitching, and, mu- and much of that is just people just don't like the Wilpons and they don't like Brody Van Wagenen. So there was this lust for the Phillies before the season, which I didn't understand. And now if you look at the rosters with – Top to bottom, based on their careers, I'm not talking about the Mets relievers' performance. Which roster would you rather have? Well, I wouldn't want the 13-year contract to Harper. I don't know why that's not talked about more. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not joking when I say you look at Michael Conforto. Is there really a difference between Conforto and Harper? Look, Bryce Harper is a gifted talent who is – a pretty good player. In Mike Trout's class, he's not in Manny Machado's class. He's a very good player who got great player money, and the Nationals knew what he was, and that's why they didn't sign him, and I'm convinced that they're going to pay Rendon because Rendon plays a more difficult position to play, and he's more difficult to replace. It, they, they felt they could replace Harper with that money and allocate it elsewhere. And they made an offer, and it was more of a show-me offer to make sure everybody understood, well, we tried, and they knew he'd reject it. So I'm not, I'm not anti-Harper. I, he is an overrated player in large part because he doesn't hustle all the time. Right, right. I, I, listen, I like the Mets roster. Um, I think there's some holes. I do worry, uh, you know, and this was brought up on Twitter the other day, everybody, you know, the payroll police. You know, they got, if you put Stroman in there, they probably got about $139 million already committed before arbitration and making uh, uh, any kind of changes. But, you know, look, who the heck knows what, uh, you know, the Cespedes situation is. We don't truly know how much money they have to spend. Um, they may still trade Syndergaard. You don't know. Uh, they may trade Stroman in the offseason. You don't know. It's it's a little early to, to talk about that. Uh, and you know what? Maybe they look at it where they have all these guys together. Maybe they'll really go for it. They know there's a revenue uh, payoff if they really win and they make you know, the playoffs and all the extra games. 
when the time has come, the, the, the Wilpons are conservative, and they've, they've, they've chintzed out on the fringes of the roster at times because they don't have the money uh, at times, uh, or they don't want to spend the money. But Jeff is a little different than his father, and I do believe if they have the chance to do something dynamic with Brody as the GM, because they proved it by hiring him, they're going to do it. They're not going to go to $200 million and go above the luxury tax, but they may push the envelope a little bit. Um, I see. I haven't even paid really a great deal of attention to the payroll projections for next year because you don't know what they're planning on doing, if they're going to trade Syndergaard or if they're going to trade Ramos or what sleight of hand they're going to try to pull with the, with the payroll. How would you know? Oh, they have to commit all this money to X number of players. Well, you worry about it then. Other teams seem to figure it out. You trade X player to clear some money. I mean, Ligaris is coming off the books. That's wasted money. That's dead money right there. Frazier's coming off the books. There are players that they're going to be able to clear. So I'm not going to sit here and worry about uh, arbitration and payroll because as much as everyone says that the Mets don't spend any money, they're, what, ninth in payroll? They're right behind the Dodgers in payroll. I mean, you're not getting the same results. You don't have the same uh, media lust at what they're doing. Oh, look how brilliant they are. But they're like a million and a half dollars behind the Dodgers in payroll. So uh, payroll's not a something to sit there and concern yourself about. Last thing as we wrap up here, and I got Paul Lebowitz with me. Uh, you remember Paul. He's been a friend of the show. Uh, at Prince underscore of underscore NY uh, was on FanRag, freelance baseball writer, has his own website, paullebowitz.com. Uh, Brody, uh, Mickey Calloway, for the most part, about a month ago, I thought was a goner at the end of the year. And I, I still think it's going to be hard to, to – if he, they don't make the playoffs, I don't know if they would keep him. Uh, I know the media wants him out. I know the fans want, want him out. Uh, John Heyman had a report that one of the names the Mets may be, be considering, and it sounded a lot like an ownership pick was Robin Ventura, who to me is very similar to Mickey Calloway. It's the same type of move. I'm not sure that's where I would go if I'd fire Calloway. But if they do make it the playoffs and they do make it to a play-in, and maybe even if they win and get to the NLC, uh, NLDS and lose, we may have another year of Mickey Calloway here. I know that that sounds crazy, but they're playing well. Testament to Brody, he, whether you believe it or not, he did say that from a standpoint of process, there was nothing ugly going on that would force him to fire him midseason. Um, maybe he's not as bad as we think. I don't think he's a great in-game. He's got flaws, but the players seem to like playing for him. Maybe there's something there that you know he's maturing, or maybe he will continue to mature in the position. What did Robin Ventura do in his time with the White Sox that would make you say, this is the guy I want to replace my manager? The only reason the Mets would consider, again, an ownership move, Grand Slam single, he's a Met, you know him from his time as a player. It's not it's the same type of manager. If you're going to get rid of Callaway, to me, you've got to go experienced. You don't, it's if not, you're going to get rid Callaway. of If you're going to get rid of Callaway, there are managers who you say, the only reason I'm getting rid of Callaway is to hire Girardi or to hire Showalter. If you're going to turn around and you're going to hire Robin Ventura or you're going to hire John Farrell or you're going to be so oh so clever and give the job to Luis Rojas thinking you're you're getting a a replica of A.J. Hinch or uh, Alex Cora, just leave Callaway. And there seemed to be a little bit of a a fissure between him and Dave Island 
that has been cleared up because uh, Phil Regan's not a threat to anyone. He's not going to overly assert himself. He seems like he's just more observing. I will make this suggestion to you, and if you want to try it and see if it works, and if that doesn't work, we'll try something else, or we, you know, we can talk about it. Dave Island was in your face. And I like that, he, but maybe that wasn't right for these guys. I thought that was what they needed. I was all for it, but in hindsight, maybe I was wrong about that. If you're Noah Syndergaard and Jacob deGrom, you want this guy in your face? You want to hear him? No. You want to hear his I every just day felt in your that face? Warfare I was too it. lax on them. Yeah. I, I thought the prior regime was lax on them. I mean, not so much DeGrom, but I thought they never were pushed, and they were allowed to pretty, pretty much dictate what they wanted, and, and they needed something the opposite. But maybe it was, it was obviously too much of an extreme because uh, Syndergaard didn't want to listen to him. I know that for a fact. He was not open no. to any of violent suggestions. If um, to me, if Callaway, if the Mets finish at say eighty-five and seventy-seven and have a good final two months and just barely miss the wildcat, Jeff Jeff Fulcon's not going to fire Callaway if he gets them in at over five hundred. He's not going to do it. He doesn't fire the manager unless the season is a disaster. And you look at his history; he won't fire. He won't fire the manager. How long did they keep keep Terry? They gave Terry two years after the uh, World Series when they were kind of – they were um, okay the second year, but that was only because of a late-season run. Ironically, a late-season run because of a terrible schedule and a weak wild card. kind of sounds familiar. Right. And the next hey, year – the 95 the Yankees. The 95 Yankees, you could make that argument. The, the Mariners that same year. This is not the first time this happened. You know, it's, it's, it's well, not unprecedented. Team, teams can come back. Now, look, the Mets are playing bad teams. They don't make the schedule. And if you're running this, this five-man rotation out there, you are going to be in the game every night. Now, of course, there are questions, the bullpen, and, but you have two choices. You can bring in a couple of new names. Cody Allen was just released. He worked with Callaway in Cleveland. I think he's worth a shot just as an extra guy. Give it a shot. Change your scenery. Get him back with his old pitching coach. Maybe you'll catch some lightning in a bottle. Apart from that, with Diaz, what else are you going to do other than keep throwing him out there? You want to demote him? You want to use him in the eighth inning for a while and let Lugo close? You can do that. But the best you can hope for, rather than just changing the names, is trying to get these guys who, to live up to their potential. And there seems to be a little bit more of a calmer atmosphere with Phil Regan in there. And I think that if they do manage to have a respectable finish, then they will not fire Callaway. Hey, you can always sign Matt Harvey. I see pining on Twitter for Matt Harvey to come out of the bullpen for the Mets. I clearly don't think they have been watching what a compromised version of Matt Harvey you're getting at this point in his career. So it is funny, but that has been, that has been percolating here. I don't think he would come back. No, nor would the Mets want him back. I've heard he's got some bigger issues than on. I've heard he's got bigger issues without getting into it than just baseball. So, well, look, if you are going to be this nightlife party guy, let's put it that way, the nightlife party guy with the models, and you want to be in the gossip columns, and you want everybody to notice you for your pitching, you had better perform. And if you don't perform, you're going to hear about it. And if you collapse the way he has, then nobody's going to want to have anything to do with you. I think he thought that because he was such a great pitcher that 
he could get away with anything he wanted to, and he was right. But what he didn't realize is that once he's not a great pitcher anymore, even a good pitcher, nobody's going to put up with you. Can't can't argue with that. Paul Lebowitz, great stuff. Enjoyed this. Nice long segment. Uh, let's do it again. PaulLebowitz.com, at Prince underscore NY, under, uh, of, uh, at Prince underscore of underscore NY. Paul, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate the time. All right, Mike. It's uh, Paul Lebowitz. Good stuff over there. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. And to wrap with the Mets, I know you've told me Mickey Calloway is safe at least for a little bit, but if not Joe Girardi, and I don't think it would ever be Buck Showalter, who who would be the next manager of the Mets? Yeah, from what I understand now, uh, Mickey Calloway is safe for the year. They're not going to do the interim route. He will be the manager of the Mets for the year. Uh, one name I've been hearing now, and uh, they don't want to talk about replacements because Mickey is the guy at this point, but one name I've been hearing is Robin Ventura. And uh, people will recall that uh, he had a very nice tenure with the Mets, also played for the Yankees, also has major league managing experience. So uh, I think he would definitely be in the mix if he wants to do it. That was the question before he went to the White Sox. Does he want to manage? Uh, and I do think that uh, uh, given the chance to manage the Mets, I think he probably would be interested. We'll, we, we may find out, but I think it'll be after the year because uh, Mickey, as I said, safe for the year. All right, we're back. Great stuff from Paul Lebowitz. And, and to wrap up here, I wanted to get into some of the things you heard there, specifically the Mickey Calloway part. And what's interesting, with the Mets winning and with Calloway being such a focus through the first three months or so of the year, and it's died down quite a bit since the whole Vargas incident with you know he and Vargas. Um, it's died down quite a lot. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's non-existent. I wonder... If the Mets, if they make the playoffs, and I said this, even if they made the playoffs, I was like, well, would, it depends. Would you blow a game? Would you know what would the what would ownership and the and, and the GM think of Mickey if they made the playoffs? And now I'm saying to myself, all right, they're in the race. Let's say things stay pretty much the same, and the Mets wind up oh 84 wins, five or six games out of the wild card. Would that save his job? And then I hear that clip that I played right before, courtesy of uh, John Heyman's podcast on Radio.com, and hearing that John Heyman has Robin Ventura as one of the names that the Mets are looking at to maybe replace Mickey. And that's not the direction I would go. And I don't really think if Brody indeed has the kind of influence over ownership and he could sell them on a vision, I'm not sure that's where Brody would want to go. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, the, the the manager part is the part that we can't really pinpoint because he's never really talked anything but glowingly about Mickey. And if you're going to win now and win in the future, you probably want a win now manager like a Shoalwater, like a Girardi, uh, Dusty Baker. And I'm not going to get into my preference right now because to me that's that's not important because the Mets are in a, a race here. But if the answer is, well, we're going to fire Mickey – for making the playoffs, getting knocked out in a wild card game, falling just short, let's say a mid-80s team, and bring in Robin Ventura. We talked about Ventura during the last managerial search two years ago. There was not glowing reports about him from the Chicago contingent. And in a lot of ways, if I remember correctly, he was very similar to Brad Ausmus, to Callaway when Callaway was going. Now Callaway's got experience. They're all the same, very nondiscreet, very low-key, 
guys that answer to the GM, more of a middle manager, uh, you're basically getting the same kind of personality for this club. Is he better tactically or strategically? It's not what I read. You could criticize any manager, though. I don't know if that's moving forward. If you feel that the manager is a problem, and as this season plays out, we have to see how Mickey handles this wild card race. Let's let them get to 500 over the next week because they have a chance now to get to 500. I thought it would take them till late August. They may be able to get this by the end of the first 10 days of August to get to 500 and above, and that's important. Let them get to 500, let them start getting above 500, and really stick around this race two, three games going into the games with Washington and Philadelphia because that's the team teams that you're going to have to beat. You're going to have to beat those guys head-to-head. If you're really going to make hay, you have no control over the Giants. You have no control over Arizona. You have to beat. You have no control over Chicago. You have to beat the teams that are in front of you that you could control, which is the Nationals and the Phillies. And let's see how Mickey performs. Let's see this club continue to play hard. They've been, Even when they've been experiencing gut-punching losses, horrible bullpen, I was a little worried that game before the All-Star break, I felt like that was a bad sign because I felt they mailed that one in. Wheeler pitched poorly. But this team has been through so much garbage this year. The criticisms of the manager, the controversy, the media constantly pounding away at them, waiting for whatever banana peel they could put out, putting it down. Uh, they've gone through internally their own issues with the bullpen and injuries and and slumps. And, and Cano has become such a, a, a lightning rod for media criticism, as I knew he would be if he did not have a good year because of his uh, – was the Mets fans' penchant to beat up on big-name players, their penchant to, to give very little rope. And the fact that he was a, a great Yankee uh, makes it even harder for him to uh, be accepted here. But my thing is this, let's really, as part of this whole thing, look at Mickey as objectively as possible. Let's put all the stuff that's happened in the back burner, because that doesn't matter right now. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. And let's see, is this a guy that, as Brody said, has, has, has from a process standpoint, has done a, a good job in, in, uh, in managing the club? The players want to play for him. The players respect him. You heard what Paul said about maybe getting Island out of there, an alpha personality, uh, a former, uh, you know, Mickey's a former pitching coach. Maybe that helped a little bit. Uh, not that I think Phil Regan's the answer long term. Again, the guy's in his 80s, and I respect what he's doing, but I don't think he's going to be here forever. But is Mickey the guy that could coexist with Brody? Because if Brody's idea is to bring somebody in that could be his guy, but is another guy like Callaway, then keep Callaway, unless he's that bad. And does he make some peculiar moves? He does. I'm not totally thrilled with his in-game management, but it's no more horrible than what we experienced with Terry Collins, and it's no more horrible than what you see across the league. What I do think may happen is the Mets are going to fall short in some capacity, whether it will be in the wild card race, getting into a wild card game. Something may happen which makes you wonder. Mets only have so much flexibility to improve the roster next year. There's a lot here. Do you bring in an experienced manager that's known to do turnarounds like a Shoalwater? Or do you bring in a Girardi who has New York experience that can handle the cauldron and some of the uh, cesspool that being around this team that has been the snake pit that being around this team has become? And does that get this team to the next level? I can't answer that question right now. But I think we have the next eight weeks to really look at Mickey and see what's going on. But irregardless... Even if this thing falls apart tomorrow or starts falling apart tomorrow and they, they're a 75-win team or 77-win team, he'll be gone. 
I don't think Robin Ventura is the answer. That's not the direction. And I love Robin Ventura. I love what he meant for those late 90s mats, the Grand Slam single. He was a, a good leader in that clubhouse, but he was a steady veteran leader. He, he, he's not necessarily the guy at this point that is going to be a big upgrade or change from Mickey Calloway. And, and to me, that's why you stick with Calloway. But we've got a lot more baseball to, uh, to, to, to go through here. Have fun. This is a, a, a wild card race. I hate to call it a pennant race because sometimes the wild card is a different type of pennant race. Pennant race to me is those, those teams that are going to be in there and you know, you know you're going to have a nice spot with home field advantage and you're going to be playing in a, in a five-game series. But you're in a wild card race. And that's why this was created back in the 90s. And you really should start having some fun with it because I see a lot of people, whether it be the small sample size on Twitter or people I talk to that are Mets fans that probably don't even know Twitter exists and, and, and read the newspaper still, they're not having fun with this. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're, they're worried about prospects. That's not what this is about. I mean, you got people worried about Jason Vargas. Oh, they traded him to the Phillies. They got Marcus Stroman, who even if he has that adjustment period, and he, he probably will, He's still going to be better than Vargas. The upside is is exponentially better. And I I actually liked what Vargas did, and he's a solid number five starter. Mats is going to do that job. He's going to do it just as well, and he has a lot more upside. You just basically you, you flipped Stroman for Vargas, which is a huge upgrade, and you slid Mats into Vargas's spot as a number five in the rotation. And let's face it, Mats has the potential to be a number three. Vargas does not. We're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this special edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Of course, I want to thank Paul Lebowitz for joining me. You can check him out on his website, paullebowitz.wordpress.com. Of course, I want to thank all of you for listening all the time. You can get this show and other editions of the show at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G at the end, talkingmetspodcast.com. You can also email me, mike at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Keep that in mind. Um, you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your weekend. We'll be back with another edition of the podcast very soon. Take care, everybody.